0: Hey guys, hey, it's Kelly Kalor and Ben Simone. And today we have a very special guest. We have a lot in common. Um, I know that you guys are going to be really interested to hear the real story um, with Alexis Haynes. So Alexis, thank you so much for being on Hey Guys, Hey! today. We have a lot to talk about, um, and I'm really excited to, you know, hear about, you know, where you've come from, where you are today, and where you're going. I'm really excited for your new journey. Thanks for yes. having me. I'm ready to yes. dive in. <laughs> dive in. Um, so first of all, you are in your bedroom, and I'm in my kitchen, and you have two kids. So how old are your kids?
1: Yeah, I have um, my oldest just turned eight, and then I have a four year old too. Um, and this pandemic has <laughs> thrown me. I went from being a working mom with a nanny with my kids in school to becoming like a homeschooling mom who was doing it all to um, leaving my work a couple of months ago because. I was so burnt out. I still am burnt out. I'm like trying to kind of recover from from this pandemic and from the the weight that it threw on me. it's interesting because um, I know so many women relate to that because it's not really falling on men, right It's falling on us to like figure all of this out and to like all of a sudden become teachers on top of everything else that we do. so it's been, a really rough year. I'm so looking forward to August. My kids are going back to school. I'm like, praise the Lord. (laughs) I need you guys back in school full time.
0: The education system, the savior. (laughs) Yes, I know. I mean, it's been so interesting. I mean, obviously we, you know, there's been so much loss, um, during this time and we all recognize that. And, um, you know, um, pay a lot of respect to those who have lost family members and have, you know, been very, very, very ill. Um, but for those who are navigating this brave new world at home, you know, you have young children, I have older children. So my kids are 21 and 23. And, you know, for me, it was bittersweet, because like, I would never have this time with my girls, mm-hmm. you know, they're you know, on their way to being successful young women, and it was just so nice to be able to spend that time with them. Um, but I know it was very, very stressful for them because of the college years, those college experiences where you're supposed to make a lot of mistakes and, um, you know, learn from those are not gonna be something that they're gonna be able to experience. Speaking of mistakes, why don't we just talk, <laughs> dive right in? Okay. Um, Well, you've done a lot of great things. You've done a lot of great things. Um, Yeah. So you were, you know, on the bling ring, which you're known for, and Mm -hmm. uh, there was a Vanity Fair article that was written about you that you um, were not so pleased about, but you've turned a corner um, and have a great podcast with your mom um, and have written a book and are married and have two beautiful children. So, um, you know, we all congratulate you for having the strength um, and the confidence to um, build a new life for yourself. I really, I really respect that a lot. Um, let's go back to the bling ring. I know you don't like like to talk about it all the time. I'm sure like everyone's always like asking these questions, but you know, I'm genuinely interested, not in what you did, Um, or what your friends did, but I just want to talk about for our viewers, just kind of like, you know, you know, you do work in recovery and I just want to, it's more about, you know, I'm not trying to like, you know, rehash history. I just want to have solutions for, um, my fan base and, um, you know, why did it happen?
1: Yeah. I think the biggest problem that I had with... I mean, I had a number of problems with the way that the media covered this story. Um, often people ask me, like, why haven't you ever seen the movie? And it's because it's so distorted from like what our reality actually was. And right. the, the bling ring is really it requires a lot of nuance to have this conversation. And it requires a lot of like reflection about us as individuals and who we are as a society, because um, the bling ring wasn't um, as glamorous as the media made it. It wasn't as exciting and as cool as like, they were trying to portray it in the, in the movie. Um, But it was a story of, Um, A group of kids who all had their own motives, and I can only speak to mine. Right. um, But who took part in one of the biggest crimes in history. So, um, in order to.
0: Why not, why didn't you just steal from Maxfields? Like, you know, kids shoplift and, you know, I mean, I'm not saying it's good or bad, but you know, let's talk about like, you know, kids do make mistakes. So why didn't you just go to Maxfield? Why didn't you just go to Barney's? Why did you want to go to celebrity homes?
1: Um, you just froze and I'm frozen too now. Shit. (laughs) Okay,
0: here we go. Okay. Sorry.
1: You totally froze, but I caught your, I caught your question. Um, yeah. So I think one of the biggest misconceptions um, about my involvement in the bling ring is that I was this bling ring leader or that I attended more than one burglary. So the burglary that I attended was at the home of Orlando Bloom's house. And I had no involvement with planning that robbery. Um, I partook, um, but I I didn't know at the time that it was Orlando Bloom's house. so. Again, Rachel and Nick have been robbing homes for since December of two thousand eight. Was the first recorded home that they broke into, which is the home
0: of Paris Hilton's house. So it's and, great for everybody to know. Just kind of like I like to contextualize. So that's like the advent of reality TV. I mean, we we saw Paris Hilton on television, but yeah. Kardashians are started to be famous. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Housewives franchise was just starting, but reality TV um, and reality stars were just starting to become household names. Go ahead.
1: Yeah, it was definitely the time of the socialite, right? And and this is what I'm talking about where, like, we can have this nuanced conversation about the bling ring. It's, like, I think a lot of Nick and Rachel's motivations were the fact that we had been fed since we were little kids. You know, we grew up in the early 2000s. So we had been fed this lie that, like, unless you have that juicy tracksuit or that mini, you know, at the time everyone was carrying those little Louis Vuitton bags over their shoulders, those, like, mini okay. bags – yeah. That like, you weren't worthy. Like this was the beginning of being fed the lie on mass scale. Like women have always been told, Oh, you've got to wear makeup. You've got to present yourself this way. You've got to this. But now it's like, we're talking about kids being inundated with this type of content all of the
0: fucking time. So and this is like the pre, like, we haven't had Instagram yet. We just no started. social media. Yeah.
1: Uh, yeah. Social so Facebook got- wasn't really like a thing yet. There was MySpace. It was, very like basic. Right. Um so I you know and again I can't speak to like the motivations of Nick and Rachel aside from saying that I think that they're it's so easy for us as a society to point our fingers at these kids that committed these crimes without taking any responsibility for like the culture and the way that culture has evolved over the last 25 ish years. Um, so Nick and Rachel started to rob houses December of 2008. And I met Nick in the late spring of 2009. So by the time that I had met Nick, um, it's not like we were like long-term friends. I didn't know Rachel. I didn't know Diana. I didn't know Courtney. I didn't know any of my other co-defendants really. Nick was my main point of contact. And when that burglary took place, um, like I said, I wasn't involved in the planning. I took part in it. Um, and I didn't find out whose house it was until after the fact. So what my problem with the media was like, okay, so I, there was just so much missing. Like at that point I was already a full blown heroin addict. Like no, no one really like saw that part. It's like the story of Alexis Nyers is this like bratty girl who had her own reality TV show.
0: I don't care about her. I want to know about you. So you were a full blown heroin addict at what age?
1: uh, 16. I was smoking like four to five Oxycontin a day and popping Vicodin all day. And by the time I was 17, I was smoking heroin on a daily basis so that's the thing is like what the media so, portrayed wait, me. No, wait, wait, wait,
0: wait. Let me ask you a question. Were you, so were you hanging out with these guys because, you know, they were part of that. Um, you know, they were, they were part of like the cool group that were like doing all the, you know, doing drugs or were you hanging or why were you hanging out with them? Like what drew you to Nick? Like why were you? Hanging uh, out with them? Yeah. My sister. Like, I, don't really, I just want to, like, I just want to be clear about this interview. Like you know, I'm not here to like uh, micromanage or dissect what happened. I really want to know about you. That's the great thing about Hey Guys Hey is like we are having a conversation that you're not going to have with anyone else. Like I really genuinely am interested in you. So like I just want to like talk about, you know, you know, who you are and I mean, you've done so many great things with your life and it's just really important for the, for the viewers to understand, like, listen, you know, you were 16 years old, like smoking crack, you know? I mean, that is something that's, that in itself is just like, you know, it makes me so sad. Like, I'm just like, like literally so sad. Um, yeah. Um, I didn't, so that's what so- I want to know. I don't really care about the bling I want to know about like, you know, How so? You started smoking crack. Like, how did you? How was that? How did you start smoking crack?
1: I wasn't smoking crack. So I was using heroin, which is a a different drug. Sorry, I'm sorry. It's okay. Um, yeah. So I mean, my both of my parents were addicts and alcoholics. Um, my sexual abuse began when I was four. I started being raped in my household. So. Um, by the time, oh sorry, I don't know why Siri just popped up. So yeah, my sexual abuse began when I was four at the hands of a family member who was 10 years older than me. So I was four and he was 14 mm-hmm. and that lasted until I was about seven and he was 17. And, mm-hmm. um, my dad was a really, uh, Violent alcoholic and he Mm -hmm. was physically violent and abusive towards me. My parents divorced when I was three. Um, My sexual abuse continued at the hands of babysitters and my dad's girlfriends and eventually men in Hollywood. I was raped Mm. when I was 17 by one of the biggest club owners in LA at the time. And so for me, I just grew up really fast and I went from being a kid who was really quiet um, and isolated. And then all of a sudden when those preteen years hit, I was just like, kind of like, fuck you guys, fuck this. I'm not going to take the abuse anymore. And I'm going to like figure out my own path. And I think that when you have to figure out your own path, when you're 12, That usually involves spending time with older kids. It involves spending time at other people's households um, a lot of the time. And so for me, I started exploring with substances when I was really young. And then when I was 14, I had um, a surgery. And when that surgery happened, they gave me pain pills. And I remember that very first time that I took a in And I was like, I felt like what I would assume normal was, right? Like all of my anxiety, all of my fear, all of my depression, all of my anger, all of my rage, all of my feelings of being unworthy and unlovable and all of that like went away. And so um, I chased that for until I got sober at 19. So for the next five years. Um, And what happens when you're consuming substances like opiates is you develop a tolerance. And so that tolerance just kept going up and up and up. And then by the time I was um, almost 16, I was introduced to Oxycontin, which is the highest and most potent pill that you can have, closest thing to heroin. It's basically heroin in pill form. That's not true. I guess you could say fentanyl is, but it's up there. And I started smoking oxys, and then I couldn't afford that habit anymore. And before you knew it, like I had turned to heroin. And so, what's interesting about my story is that people saw this very like surface level. This girl who seemed so privileged, who seemed um, like who seemed like she had it all, but really I, I didn't have anything figured out. Um, my dad, who was one of the biggest director of photographies in the industry, he worked on Friends for eight years and The Nanny and all of those sitcoms in the 90s, was homeless by the time I was um, about 11. We, were, we could barely afford toilet paper sometimes And we just happened to get discovered in LA and you know how it is. They'll make a show out of anything. Like if they see potential, they'll take that and run. Um, So I didn't get my show because of my involvement with the bling ring. I already had my contract before that incident took place. Mm -hmm. And before that contract with E, I literally was panhandling for drug money. I mean, that's how bad it was. So, when, so what do
0: you be specific? What do you mean by panhandling for drug like money?
1: Like begging for money on the street and at gas stations and stuff to like supply my drug habit. I was working as a music video girl making like 250 bucks, like basically selling my body at like 17 to dance like you know how we dance and music videos and do types of things that are extremely inappropriate for sixteen and seventeen year old girls to be doing, but I was doing it in order to survive. Um, I. Did
0: your mom, know what you were doing that?
1: Yeah, my mom. Just my mom did the same thing. My mom left the house at 14, started working for Playboy the day she turned 18. I mean, like, she had the same exact trajectory. She didn't see a problem with it because that was her life. And that's what she was conditioned to. And so, um, you know, when – and I'm not claiming to be some, like, Mother Teresa by any means. But I get really frustrated when – the media, especially, because it's like all of the court documents are there. You guys intentionally spin this the way you want to spin this because sex sells. So it's boring that like some gay kid and his bestie robbed houses. That, st- that stays in the news cycle for like a minute. But this girl who has her own reality TV show, whose dad used to work in the industry, whatever, that was like the mastermind of the bling ring will go on forever. It still is. Here we are a decade later. Um, And so it's so frustrating to me the way that this story has been covered because the truth is that, and again, I was checking cars for cash, right? Late at night, checking to see what cars were open, trying to get cash out of cars so I could get my drug fix. Like I was taking money from my parents at parties. Um, You know, if I saw money laying around, I would totally stick that in my back pocket like i needed to stay high in order to survive i would have killed myself if i had been sober because the amount of pain i was in from the amount of abuse both both well not both but no, <laughs> the amount of sexual physical and emotional abuse that i had been through at that period of time was so um so much that i you know, I never thought that I would live past like 20. And that's how I was living my life. Like I didn't care if I saw tomorrow. I didn't care if I overdosed. I didn't care if I died. I just needed to stay high. And so
0: my mom, did your mom know that at that age you were doing all those drugs?
1: Yeah. So she, I mean, my mom like smoked pot with us when I was like, 14 so it's not like drugs were like a no-no in our house she eventually figured out about the harder stuff but at that point I was too far gone it's like too late you had your chance like five years ago when I was coming home with a black eye and I told you that my dad just punched me in the face like you had the opportunity to step in and do something and because of her own addiction and her own struggles she didn't you know and Mm-hmm. And and I don't blame her for that. Like, I really believe that I came into this family and onto this planet at this time to to break those toxic cycles. And that's exactly what I did. I needed to be the first person in our family to pull us out of this mess. And so for whatever reason, I needed to go through that amount of pain in order to do that. So when mm-hmm. I met Nick, I mean, I've only hung out with Nick a dozen times, maybe like that's how, (laughs) yeah, we were using substances together and we would go out and party in Hollywood and go out to clubs and stuff like that. But it was a very short period of time. So if I met Nick in the middle of that spring, the robbery took place in early July. So that's like three months time that I knew him. And so um, that night I took part, and I'm unfortunately like under a contract right now, so I can't say as much as I would like to, other than to say that my motives were strictly to have money for drugs. That was it. Everybody had their own motives, everybody um, went into that house with their own agenda and mine was like, I need to like stay high for as long as I possibly can. And what's so interesting is that that one night would end up being the thing that like saved my life. And, and even though that's the thing that like I'm most infamous for, um, I, I will forever be grateful because had I not gone to jail, yeah, I would, I just know that like, I wouldn't be sitting here today,
0: um, 10 years later. Like, I just know that I wouldn't. And what was your experience like in jail? Because, you know, there is substance abuse in jail. So what, how did you like, how, like what happened when you were there?
1: Um. Yeah, so I was um, put in PC, so I wasn't in general population, um, <clears throat> so I didn't have contact with anybody for my entire stay, It like face-to-face contact. I was in a jail cell by myself for 23 out of 24 hours a day. I got one hour out. Um, and in that hour, I was allowed to like shower and have a phone call, but nobody else was out at the same time as me. Um, that's a ward where people are, it's for like the criminally insane for people who are in there for murder, severe sexual abuse charges, or, um, extremely high profile cases where they're a risk to the general population. Right. So, um, So were you, were you getting, how were you like, how did you get sober? I didn't have a, I didn't have a choice. I just kicked drugs and, and it was the most, um, inhumane, um, dangerous and like scary days of my life. Um, I, I don't believe that. I know it's hard for people to empathize with addicts and even people who commit crimes, but nobody should have to go through what I went through, which was almost dying. I ended up um, having kidney failure that, and I couldn't get down to the infirmary for care and I literally almost died in my jail cell. Um, I had such a bad kidney infection from severe dehydration. Um, and I was so physically ill. So, yeah, I mean, I don't think anybody should have to go through what I went through. It was really tough. Um, and again, like that wasn't the thing that like kept me sober but it was a starting point because um after I detoxed I could kind of see for the first time ever that um my relationships with substances were a problem but what's so interesting is that um further down the road, I would realize that it wasn't the substances that the, were the problem. It was like me, like it was my trauma. Like I had to heal. The The drugs were just a solution to my pain. What I really needed was treatment. And no one in my family had gotten sober before. So it's not like I had like anybody to like walk me through through yeah. that. And so after I got out, um, I had every intention of staying sober. Like I wanted, I wanted it. I really did. But I didn't have any of the tools and the pain was still there. I mean, and actually it was getting worse. I was having um I was diagnosed with Chronic post-traumatic stress disorder um, and disassociation where like I would go into these vivid lucid memories of um, my early childhood sexual abuse and when you're having memories um, that feel like it's reality that you're four years old getting raped um, and the only thing that fixes that is drugs and alcohol and you have no other tools in your you know, a teenager, you just go back to using. So I did. Within two weeks, I was back to shooting up heroin. And, um, and I was arrested again for possession of heroin. And when I was arrested that second time, um, they were ready to sentence me to three to six years in prison for violating my probation. And I'm so grateful. I'll say his name every single time. Judge Peter Espinoza was the man who really saved my life. He gave me the opportunity to go to treatment. And I was so scared. I almost wanted to go to prison because I was like not ready to
0: face the demons. Like I was like. How do you afford that? I mean, if you're, you know like looking in cars for cash. Like how did you afford treatment?
1: Yeah. Um, so I was scholarship. So treatment centers will offer you scholarships, which is basically like you kind of receive the lowest level of care, but they'll take you. Right. And so I was scholarship into, um, a center where I stayed for a year. And in that year, um, my life slowly began to change. Like, those early days of sobriety were rough. Like, every single cell in your body is telling you to run and escape and to go back to using. Um, your brain has literally been, like, hijacked for so long on substances that it's the only thing that you want. But... Um, Yeah, it was the community. That's what's so interesting is like, it wasn't even the groups or the therapy that kept me sober. It was finally talking to other people who were like, I've been there. Like, I've been there and I know what it's like and you're not alone. Like, having somebody who can say that to you when you're like, feeling like you're the biggest piece of shit in the whole world. You feel like you're so unlovable, so unworthy, that you're the biggest you're trash. Like and, and on top of that, like all of the public pressure, obviously that was all covered in the media too. Like so now I'm this like 19 year old girl who's just has so much pressure on her to like stay straight. And I think it's why you know, it seems like Paris is doing really well now, which is amazing. But where you see the Demi Lovatos and the Paris Hiltons and the Lindsay Lohans in and out and in and out and in and out, I mean, that public pressure is like crazy. And I always say to people now who follow me or listen to my podcast or who, um, who, you know, watch along or keep track of my story, like don't Put me on a pedestal. Don't like idolize anybody because we will always fall short of grace. It's unfair to do that to people because those lows, those moments, even in my sobriety where I've had really low lows and a lot of challenges and struggles over the last decade, um, those moments are what shape us into better people. If you take the opportunity to grow and to to be – compassionate and kind to yourself and patient in those in those moments like my life is not perfect it's a hell of a lot better than it than it used to be
0: um when i was in when you were on e is that when you your, your show on e were you sober then no no
1: i mean when i was filming my show and i was fighting my case at the same time that i was filming the show um, my addiction increased because now I was making, uh, I think it was, yeah, I was making like over 10 K a week off the show. Um, and so now I had funds to fuel my addiction and my way of life. And so my, um, addiction during that time
0: became exponentially worse, um, um, So how could you film if you were or you were were you high when you were filming?
1: I was high like the second I woke up until the second I went to bed. Somehow I like managed a little, but you know how it is. Like you're filming 12 hour days, five days a week, sometimes six. And then they take that week and they condense it down to like a 30 minute episode. So I'm sure they had a lot of they had a lot of editing they had to do. They had to edit out all the times where I'm like nodding out on the camera or I'm like too drunk or whatever it might be. Like, absolutely. There were, um,
0: they did the best that they could. Did they ever say anything to you? Do they like say, Alexis, like we can't film you like this.
1: Um, no, because they're reality TV producers. They'll film anything. Um, so no, they would, film whatever they wanted to film. Um, But they caught me with drugs um, a number of times.
0: Yeah. And never did they ever say anything?
1: Um, They like flushed them down the toilet once, which was a terrible mistake because we were in Mexico. And then I started kicking and then I spent the whole next five hours instead of filming, I ran away and then was like going to the pharmacies in Mexico looking for opiates So, I mean, it wasn't glamorous. That whole time I was filming what looked like living in the Hollywood Hills, I was really living in a best Western in Hollywood, like scoring drugs any second I wasn't filming. It's not, it wasn't real life. That show was like so fabricated. I mean, of course there was pieces and aspects of it. What's so interesting is like, underneath the addiction was this person who was like, cause we were originally sold to E as like the crunchy version of the Kardashians, right? Like the ones who are into manifestation and meditation and all of that. And it's like underneath my addiction, like we were that, but my addiction, all of our addictions, not just mine. The only person who was pretty much safe from it was my littlest sister. But Outside of that, like, we couldn't be those people because we were using drugs to spiritually bypass all of the work that, like, we needed to do. Um, Well, how did your youngest sister, how was she not exposed to it? Well, she just, I mean, she used substances, but she, for whatever reason, didn't get addicted. She didn't use substances like us. I think her being littler than us, we tried to protect her from that. And so we didn't expose her to that. I mean, she was smoking weed and drinking, but she wasn't, um, like smoking heroin in the the back of my car, you know, with us, like we, we tried to keep her, um, safe from all of that.
0: Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So, so now, so now, I mean, I just, like, I don't know what to say, honestly. Like, I just, like, I can't even, I can't, you know, I'm the mother of two girls. And I just can't even, you know, I, I, I'm sorry. Like, I'm just so sorry. It's okay. Um,
1: yeah. It's, um, some people think it's weird when I say this. But it's the truth. Um, I don't have any regrets. Like, I wouldn't change any of it. None of the abuse, none of the pain, none of the suffering. Like, I don't know. I really believe that I incarnated on this planet to go through this in order to help people. I feel like that's why I was led into going to treatment. That's why I... Um, you know, it was like, it all worked out the way that it needed to work out in order to, for me to get here. And when I was in treatment, I went to school to become a drug and alcohol counselor. I started working with other addicts. Um, I started really getting informed about the root causes of addiction. Um, and I started to learn about like the world and about other suffering and about the systems in place that keep us suffering. Um, I met my wonderful husband who we've been married now for nine years and have two children and are in a very happy and successful marriage. I um, supported him as he started his own treatment center, which is now super successful. And we've had the the honor and the privilege of, of serving and helping thousands of people get sober. Like I wouldn't have the platform. I wouldn't have the podcast. I wouldn't get the incredible DMS that I do of people who are like, you really inspired me to go and seek help. Like I wouldn't trade it for the world. And it's not, um, like, I know that sounds like really like esoteric and like spiritual and whatever, but it's just like the suffering makes sense when I look at the bigger picture. Of things, and while I wouldn't wish my experience on anybody else, um, it's mine, and I have to own it. Like it's my story, it's my journey, it's my it's it is what it was meant and needed to be for whatever reason. And it's so cool that like I got to really break this cycle. You know, when I got sober nobody else in my family was sober. And now it's like my, um, so my mom got better. She stopped consuming substances and started working on herself, which that was huge. And then Tess got better, right? She eventually would get um, clean. And then my dad stopped drinking, which is like huge. And I get to raise these two kids in a household where they've never seen their parents or grandparents or really anybody loaded. They've never experienced trauma. I mean, how incredible is that? That I get to offer them that, and um, and that I've learned how to sit so comfortably in my own pain that. I'm able to sit with them and theirs too, and to like hold that space for them and allow them to like be who they are and express themselves the way that they need to. It's, I don't know, it just brings me so much joy. And I just know that I wouldn't be able to do any of this if my story were any different.
0: It's unbelievable. I mean, it's unbelievable. And your children, I mean, that's just so incredible for your kids. Yeah. So we know now your oldest is eight.
1: Mm-hmm. She
0: is she a boy or a girl? Girl. I have two so daughters. She, so has she been tested for, you know, it can has she been tested to see if she has an addictive personality or?
1: So what's so interesting is that um, the, the, the narrative around addiction has changed so much. It's it, we went from it being a, um, moral issue, like as if I'm just too weak, you know, or like don't give a shit enough about myself that like, I'm going to use substances. We went from like this really old story of like, this is an issue of morality to trying to make it better with the American, um, medical association, um, whatever it was, 40, 50 years ago, deeming addiction as um, an issue of, like, a medical issue, right? So the narrative really switched, and we swung, and we diagnosed addiction and alcoholism as a disease, okay? Um, And we tried to do that in order, well, for a number of reasons. One, so people could get proper care, but also so that way we could change the narrative around addiction and realize that, like, people are... In quote, sick and suffering from a disease, which is often terminal. And um, while I think that that helped us make progress in some regards, it also hindered us in others because there is no addiction gene. There's no such thing. There's no such thing as an addiction gene. In my 10 years in working in treatment, owning a treatment center, and helping thousands of people get sober, I'll tell you what's at the root of addiction. It's trauma, both generational and personal. It's trauma, and now we live in a world that is so traumatized by constant pain and suffering, right? Right that it's not even interpersonal trauma, meaning say you're my mom and you're an alcoholic and I'm your child. And then I grow up, my mom drove me drunk. She crashed the car a couple times, whatever it might be. Right. It is a set of epigenetics. It's so much more complicated. And, and, and those, but those epigenetics are turned off until trauma turns it on. And so when people often ask me about my kids, am I worried about whether or not they'll become addicted to substances, my answer is, I mean, I'm not a hundred percent confident, but I don't think my kids are gonna become addicted to substances because they don't have that pain, that gaping wound, that hole inside of them that they need to constantly be numbing in order to cope and survive in this world. I think it's becoming more and more challenging for people. Um, normal people, you hear those cases, those stories of people who are like, I had a normal childhood and like, I don't know why I'm an alcoholic. I mean, that's very rare. There is usually abuse that that person is unwilling to acknowledge or to look at yet. And eventually it does come up. But I mean, I just can talk about my generation, like growing up as um, an older millennial, what we saw growing up was this like boom in the in technology, but also this um, need for both parents to start working. So now we had you know a lot of us were in childcare. We didn't develop secure attachments with our parents because we had two working parents. We saw nine eleven, the start of an endless war. Right? We started, and then we had a huge economic crisis, which left. Tons of people in desperate situations, um, and on top of it, now because of social media, which is a great thing, um, but we're constantly being berated with the reality of who we are as as people. We're we're living in a society that's toxic, that's racist, that's filled with abuse, and I think that this younger generation which i love this this the the gen zers are saying enough we won't be traumatized anymore we won't traumatize each other we won't be traumatized we we're not working 40 hours a week until the day we die and just like suffering for our whole lives like i maybe i'm not putting this as eloquently as i can but no, exactly. what i'm trying to say is that like there's societal trauma that's happening And then there's interpersonal and personal trauma that's happening. And for some people, that leads to addiction. My goal as a parent is to raise my children in an environment that is as trauma and stress-free as possible. Now, that's not to say that I try to prevent them from going through challenging things because I don't what I try to do is adequately equip them so that way they are resilient enough as adults in order to learn how to cope with those natural and normal stresses of life so that way they don't turn to substances to numb for that.
0: Right. Coping mechanisms.
1: Exactly. So with Mm -hmm. my eight-year-old, um, This last year has been really challenging and traumatic for her. She goes and sees a therapist. We do meditation. We do emotional freedom technique tapping, right? We incorporate these tools now when she's little. So that way when she's, you know, 16 and she failed the test, she doesn't feel like she needs to go and drink and party with her friends and just blow it all off because she got a bad Great or whatever the the normal stresses of life, she's going to have the yeah. tools and the um, inner like dialogue to go. Okay, it was just a test. It's not the end of the world. I'm going to do better next time. She doesn't have a mom who like or a dad who shames her or who calls her names or who tells her that these things are the end of the world or p- who puts tons of pressure on her like that. It's just not like that. Um, and My husband and my hope is that, you know, she'll grow up to be a strong, resilient, um, well rounded, you know, well adapted human being as a result of that. And it's not easy. It's like a thousand times more work. I understand why my parents screamed and yelled and spanked us and hit us and did all the things they did because raising kids is like not at all easy. But what, you know, I think that they thought to some degree that what they were doing was okay, because that's what their parents did to them. And I'm here to say that like,
0: it's not okay. Did you have a lot of um, aggression from social media? Did you have like a lot of people with, you know, being really, really negative and um, vindictive to you on social media?
1: Yeah, so what's so interesting about the time of my show was that we didn't really have social media. Um, we had, obviously there was like tabloids (laughs) and stuff like that. So I think it's like a double edged sword. I was talking to my friend, Caitlin, who was, um, a bachelorette and, um, she, she asked me the same thing. She was like, was it easier because you didn't have that? And I was like, I think it would actually be harder because it's so nice now that you have a platform where millions of people follow you. And so say that Nancy Joe sales article came out, like you have the ability to go on and to say, you know that article was feminist or was sexist anti-feminist trash right like you have the ability to like you have a platform to like say the shit and now that's a double edged sword right like cause it could go you could go right. either way with that um, so i don't know what's better so you know i i have a, a bit of a following now and um and it's interesting too because i have like Boundaries of steel, like my recovery, like I just know that the way that my recovery succeeds is when I have strong and firm boundaries and I don't let people cross those boundaries. So like if you want to have a challenging conversation with me, a very nuanced conversation, I expect you to be as vulnerable as I'm willing to be and as respectful as I'm willing to be. And then I'll go back and forth with you all day long. We can debate whatever. But if you're just going to come on my page and start talking shit about my kids or whatever else, I don't have patience for it and you'll get blocked. And, you know, it's not censorship. It's that I don't allow adults to speak to me like that, period. I just don't.
0: I always just say I mean, because sometimes I just have like a very like I, I get super dismissive when people are just like you know nasty for no reason. Yeah. I always just say if you can't handle television, like read a book. Like if, yeah. if, if you can't, <laughs> if, if it's too stressful to put on the television, and you get too invested, and you have to like go to your social media and be nasty mm-hmm. to somebody, should maybe just read a book. Um, you know, I mean, you said a lot of things that are really, really moving. And um, I really appreciate you being so open. And um, I'm just, you know, I'm really in awe of, you know, where you've come from. And I just want you to know that, you know, the Ben Simones are so happy for you and your family. <laughs> and I'm excited for your new career. I was going to talk to you about all these things. But then, you know, it's like that's the great thing about this podcast is that I'm just so interested in what you guys have to say. And so my questions just become irrelevant because, you know, you guys fuel so much um, incredible vulnerability and you're just so open. So it's just, you know, really, really special. I really thank you, Alexis, thank you. for being on my podcast. I'm Kelly Kaloran Ben-Simone with Hey Guys, Hey.